podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca is slightly different. So I've got in a cricket podcast legend to interview me. Subhash Jairaman, pinch hitting podcast host. He wanted to talk about my love of Pankaj Singh, the hapless Indian seamer who played a couple of tests and everyone loved him despite the fact that he didn't find wickets very easy. (laughs) This is more than just Pankaj though. It's about how we obsess over lovable losers and we talk about other guys too, like Jamie Siddons and Mark Ramprakash and S. Badranath and Bryce McGain. They're sort of guys who kind of made it, didn't make it, or never made it at all and why we love them and why we remember them so much. Usually I speak to others about topics, but today I have the undisputed king of cricket podcasts. I mean, objectively, he's the world supreme emperor of cricket podcasts. To think he is not the greatest person in cricket podcast history is to have an incorrect opinion. You should probably punch yourself in the face. And as such, King Sabash will interview me about one of my pieces. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, Jared. I'm used to uh, you, you know, overstating things, but this time you're spot on. You're uh, right on the mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks for giving me another opportunity to be on uh, the Red Inca. Considering such a winner that you and I are, let's talk about a loser. How about that? <laughs> a lovable loser. You wrote a couple of pieces about Pankaj Singh from India's tour of England in 2014. One from uh, Hampshire and the second piece was from Old Trafford. Let's start with what got you obsessed with Pankaj Singh, and then we can go into the pieces. I think the pieces were called Pankaj Singh Test Wicket Taker and uh, Pankaj Singh, the woeful world of Pankaj Singh. I think <laughs> so that kind of summarizes his entire test playing career that it was woeful and then he took a wicket and then we haven't seen it since. I never wrote about him again. Yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe it was because he bowled so well in that first spell. At Hampshire, and I didn't know a lot about him. His name had come up occasionally. I think he played a little bit of IPL cricket. He played maybe an ODI for India at that stage. See, I did not even know that he had played that ODI 2010 in Zimbabwe. Nobody knew that it happened, I suppose. I did not know that. And I was following cricket closely those days. And you were playing in that game. (laughs) It's possible. (laughs) So I think he bowled really well and didn't get a wicket. And then you look him up at that point and you go, well, this guy's got a good record. And it was quite a boring day. If I remember, Alistair Cook went on to make runs. I would have been working with George at the time. George probably had to write the Alistair Cook piece. Any day Alistair Cook is making runs, it's a boring day. Yeah, well, did Cook make 100 that day or did he fall just short? He made a 95 because he was almost close to getting kicked out of the team because he wasn't making any runs. Jadeja right. drops him. Yeah, Jadeja dropped him off Pankaj. And so I, I think I started following him a little bit then. And then there wasn't much going on in that day. And then, of course, that innings, went, I mean, it was a dreadful pitch. You literally, if you didn't take new ball wickets on that pitch, you were going to be in all sorts of trouble. And, of course, poor old Ravi drops Alistair Cook. Alistair Cook finds some form. That was the second test of the series, was it? Yeah. So the first test of the series was also just ordinary. It had that terrible pitch where Mohamed Shami and James Anderson made incredible innings. I remember in that first test, I literally wrote an entire 3,000-word piece on number 11s. Because it was such a boring test. I was just I'm just going to focus on the fun stuff. <laughs> so I was really struggling to get into that series. And then that happened. And then Pankaj, I just, there's something about him, his physicality, 
his body size. He doesn't really look like an Indian bowler, does he? You know, he's uh, probably more like an Australian or a New Zealand sort of physical type of guy. A Into the wind bowler, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Broad-shouldered and stuff, yeah. Exactly. Like I always, I, I want to say Ryan Harris, but maybe Ryan Harris with, without quite the muscle. Or the talent. Definitely without the talent. But uh, although both of them had to wait a long time for their opportunities, perhaps because they were too big to bowl. <laughs> but yeah, I just remember sort of getting focused with him. And you know what I'm like once I sort of get obsessed with someone, unless someone legitimately tells me not to write about them, I keep going and keep going. And it's funny, when you told me you wanted to do this, I went back and read it. And like the research on this piece is intense. Like I must have spent a day and a half of like just going in. So Alistair could make runs. Who else made runs for England? Was it Ian Bell? Yes. So, you know, by that point, I'd seen both of them make a lot of runs. I think I just tuned out of England batting and really just focused in on Pankaj in the field and everything. Wrote this big piece. He didn't take any wickets. Happened to be lucky enough to see him, you know, walk off the field, be frustrated. That becomes a you know, nice little colour ending to the piece. I write the piece, not really sure where it's going to go. And then, of course, the next test match, he takes a wicket. Here's some inner workings of Crick Info. Sambit doesn't really like it if you write about the same thing over and over again as a general rule. <laughs> Like, I remember, I think it was me and maybe Kartikeya who worked out the right-arm bowlers coming around the wicket to the left-handers before anyone else. And we both got quite obsessed about it. I think he tweeted about it. I might have tweeted about it a little bit as well. And I didn't really do anything with it. And then Sid Monga noticed it as well. Sid Monga wrote the piece. And I went back to Crick Info and said, I've got this video. And they go, well, Monga's already done it. And I was like, yeah, but now we can show it on a video. And, and they were like, that, that's already been covered. That's usually what happens at Crick Info. And in this case, I don't know what happened, but everyone was like, you should write about Pancatch again. And I was like, how on earth am I going to fill another whole feature on Pancatch? And somehow I did. And he, look, he took this wicket and it was, he bowled some really good balls over those two tests. There's a reason he didn't make it as a test match player. And that's because he couldn't bowl 18 straight deliveries in the same spot when he needed to. I think that's why he didn't make it as a test match player. But to say that he didn't have balls that were test match quality is not true. He beat the bat so many times, had some good shouts, had good batsmen doubting themselves, and then he finally gets a wicket. And, of course, in true Pancake style, it's an absolute dog shit ball down the leg side to get <laughs> Joe Root out of all people who's about to take over the batting world at that stage. And so, yeah, I think I was just obsessed. So the first one was all me, and I think, honestly... If I didn't have the freedom to write what I wanted, there's no way Crick Info would have allowed me to write that first piece. The second one, I think they were just like, everyone loved that first piece, go again! And you mentioned that in uh, the pieces as well about how the support for Pankaj is more than cricketing. It was more an emotional connection. And it, it's like feeling like a puppy, a sad puppy on the street, right? So everybody wants a puppy to succeed, you know, come on, puppy, you can get that bone. And finally, he did get that bone. Um, you write about a, like an interplay between uh, Pankaj and I think Rod Tucker and Murray Rasmus, the umpires too, you know, they must have, I'm sure they don't, but from looking from the outside point of view, you feel like, even the umpires are like, come on, buddy, do something, you know, hope something happens for you so that I can lift the finger for you. And eventually they do. How was the scene in the press box itself? You know, was this hooting and uh, hollering and cheering and everything or still reserved English press box? No, I, th I think looking back on it, I think you're right with the umpires. I mean, have you ever met Murray Erasmus? Yeah. You know, he's a lovely guy. He's a warm hearted person. Very, there are very few people in cricket that don't have a nice word to say about him. 
he also had a very good first class career. And Rod Tucker, mm. again, had a very good first class career, but mm-hmm. neither of them were ever going to play test cricket. To see that guy who had probably a little bit more talent than them, but had to do as much hard work as them. I think when you look back, they weren't rooting for him because they certainly gave him a lot of not outs. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they wanted him to get a wicket. And it's quite interesting. So I obviously became obsessed quite early on, but so did Twitter. And then I think towards the end of the first test when he was bowling, his spell there, I think then the, the press box started to turn. And press boxes, as you know, don't really turn for one particular player that often. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a reason. There might be something emotional that happens, but generally there'll be a match situation where you notice it. Or there are some press boxes where the press are very biased and they'll cheer for their team. It's very rare, I think, for someone like Pankaj, who realistically in the English press and even the Indian press, no one really knew who he was coming into that. It kept building and building up. And then by the end, when he got that wicket, there were cheers and there were noises. And you, I don't know how excited everyone was, but people just felt like a good thing had happened. Mm. And you felt that in that press box. And there were little cheers from around the ground. And I know there are Indians at Lords, but I think there were a few hardcore cricket fans who'd watched the previous test as well. And it was just, there was something about his physicality the way he appealed, the fact that we had actually seen him bowl well, the drop catch of Alistair Cook, it all came together. Perhaps my piece played a small part. I think Lawrence Booth might have written a piece about him or included him in a Daily Mail thing as well. I think you included his interaction with uh, Lawrence in the lift. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. that's the opening of your piece, one of the two pieces that you wrote. Yeah, and I can't remember if that was Lawrence writing about it or if Lawrence just told me about it because I was so obsessed with him. I think Derek Pringle or Selv, again, two Mm. guys who had, well, I suppose Pringle had a better international career, but Selv had a very similar international career to Pankaj. You know, it took him a long time to get there um, and then disappeared quite quickly. So I remember, I think one of them either, again, I had a conversation with them or maybe they were on uh, BBC or they wrote an article about it, but you just felt this thing that everyone just picked it up. It wasn't like I would, you know, sometimes when I do those pieces, it's me on my own. <laughs> I wrote a piece about Pradeep Nuan when he played. No one else noticed him as much, even though he did some funny things. With Pankaj, it wasn't just me. There was this sort of groundswell of people all going. I remember, you yeah, know, I think it was Chris Stocks just being like, Jared, he, just, he has to get a wicket. He has to get a wicket. <laughs> And I remember Martin Crowe tweeting me. It might have been the second test when he still hadn't got a wicket. And not slag him off, but basically going, Jared, you know the reasons he doesn't get wickets. You're a cricket writer. You have to be honest about it. And I was like, Martin, read the room. <laughs> no one wants a piece right now about why Pankhead Singh may not make it as a test cricketer. Here's the Hawkeye data on Pankhead Singh. This is why he's bullying dog shit. Yeah. And this is why he's not getting wickets. <laughs> so... The problem with being someone like Martin Crowe, it's the Michael Jordan element to your personality, isn't it? The mm-hmm. Kevin Peterson thing of just like, why doesn't Rassie van der Dusten just hit every ball over long on for six? And it's like, because he's not you, KP. And it's a mm-hmm. bit like that with Martin Crowe. It's just like, yeah, but you were one of the greatest batsmen your country's ever produced. And in the 80s, one of the greatest batsmen that the world had. You are not Pankad Singh. And he couldn't get his mind around that. We all worked out, perhaps quite early on, that he even wasn't good enough or that he would need a lot of luck to stick around, right? You then, once you work that out emotionally, I think you start to invest in that kind of mm. guy a little bit. And I think that's what happened with Pankaj. And uh, I think it's a wonderful thing that everyone sort of got involved. And it wasn't just the random guy on Crick Info. True. I mean, uh, he was fully formed as a human being, one, a young man, probably senior man, if you consider the um, first class system. You know, he was in his mid to late 20s, which is... Not the uh, ideal age to uh, debut as a fast bowler or 
a medium fast bowler, if you will. You know, he's had such a long first class career. Maybe like you had someone like Ishan Sharma, right? He debuts when he's 18. He has that one great spell in Perth <laughs> to Ricky Ponting. And then that kind of launches him as like, oh, the next star on the uh, horizon going to be great. But then he's like dog shit for like many, many years. But the fact that he could stay fit and learn on the job mm. that eventually has allowed him to be a successful bowler towards his late 20s. And uh, I think someone like Pankaj Singh, who would have been quicker in his younger days than he was when he debuted, could have benefited from being selected earlier in his life so that he could learn and then be more professional cricketer. I mean, you, you would want him, as we mentioned about Ryan Harris, you know, Ryan Harris, even though he came on late, he still was a gun. Mm. <laughs> you know, he didn't have to learn on the job, but someone like Pankaj, maybe. What do you think? Yeah, I think outside of probably shield cricket, there's no first-class system that really sets you up that brilliantly for test cricket. Shield cricket works because there are so few teams and because each shield match is a bit more like a test match in the way that it's played. The quality of the play in shield cricket, all those sorts of things sort of come together. And even if there are more talented first-class cricketers in South Africa or India or Pakistan or England, just because of everything else, I think that allows you. So if you are Pankaj Singh and you are as talented as he is, and he bowls balls that first-class batsmen are not going to be able to play. If you are that talented and you spend too long, we're talking about a long time. He could have been picked at around 21, 22 for India. He went through the MRS Pace Academy. He played limited overs cricket. He did everything he needed to be picked and they just decided perhaps he wasn't quite quick enough. Although reports were early on, he was quite quick. But my guess is that maybe they just had other players on their mind at that time and they didn't pick him. Playing in Ranji Trophy on pitches that sometimes helped him as well means that he had the ability... It was what I was talking about before, and to be fair, it's exactly what Martin Crowe was talking about. He couldn't bowl 18 straight deliveries in the right spot to keep a really good batsman on strike. Mm -hmm. And that's where I see a test bowler. It's those 18 deliveries. So Saranga Lakmal, I think he still averages, what, about 40, maybe 38 in test cricket, right? But he has the ability when he needs to, in certain Mm -hmm. places, to completely lock a batsman up and say, you're not going anywhere. A really good club bowler can bowl six consecutive deliveries a really good first class bowler can bowl 12 a really good test bowler bowls 18 and then you need to have the skill and the ability to be testing it for those 18 there's no point being paul collingwood and doing it you need to be at a certain pace with a certain amount of movement have a little bit of bounce you just used the name of paul collingwood so dismissively i, I always hope he do. doesn't listen to this episode i'm sure he listens to all the other episodes yeah of Red Inca. just skip this one paul <laughs> sorry paul So that's the sort of thing, it's not that you can't learn it in first-class cricket, but if you are so much better than everyone else you're playing with and against, there is a possibility that for some players that will happen. I think that's what you're talking about. Ishan Sharma, for sort of all the problems that he had, he still had the ability to do those three overs of good stuff. What Him and Lakmal both had a a very similar in that Mm. they were playing on pitches that didn't suit them. They didn't automatically bowl well when they played on pitches that did suit them for many different reasons. And then as they've got older, they're really highly skilled bowlers now and have started to work that out. There's no reason that Pankaj couldn't have done something like that if he'd had that kind of schooling. And Mm. first-class cricket is still the best training that we have for test cricket. No one's saying it's ideal. There's no way to make a secondary league, realistically, that isn't an A-team league, which is more like a G league or a minors type situation that travels around the world to actually develop players like that. Otherwise, you're always going to have problems like that, I think. When we originally discussed this topic of punkage, I was thinking that you're looking to talk about the two articles, which were quite popular when they first came out back in the day, 
that was a long, long time ago. I thought you wanted to talk about people that have come and show up and then vanish. But then talking to you recently about it, you're like, oh, the lovable losers. So I think this is the most any podcast has ever given their uh, time for somebody that played two test matches. So I think it's only fair that we give that time to some others too, who may have played only for one or two test matches, showed up, left, or were lovable losers. So I thought, you know, somebody that we should talk about other folks, whether they're bowlers or batsmen that have had a long first-class career and couldn't break through for many reasons, you know, some because there was no space available or they were just being dicks in first class. So selectors said like, screw you, buddy, or whatever the reason might be. So you want to do that? You know, because I looked up on stats guru, people that played uh, one to two test matches from the 1950s. And I only looked at bowlers. A lot of the names I don't recognize, mostly because they're South African bowlers. I don't think cricket existed there and then in South Africa. So according to cricket South Africa, it didn't. Yeah, I know. I'm the establishment guy. Because South Africa says it didn't exist, it didn't exist for me. So anyway, are there names that pop in your head? I know there are some very famous Aussie names. Yeah, I think you you sent through a WhatsApp, didn't you? You said Stuart Law, Brad Hodge, Martin Love's another perfect example of that. They all came along at the same time. In fact, um, maybe they don't fit as lovable losers anymore. But, you know, I did a podcast with Ashley Gray recently with his book, The Unforgiven. And you look at someone like, you know, that's what Danny Austin kind of would have been. Mm. He was so good, but there was no obvious space because of how West Indies cricket was at that time. I don't know how they ever would have fit him into that team, despite the fact he was an incredible player. So I think, you know, th- there's a few. I mean, to go back even further, Jamie Siddons mm. never even played. I mean, I grew up in Victoria and following Jamie Siddons really closely. He obviously went to South Australia and he was dead to me at that point. But I still followed his career. And I think that it's probably guys like him that it really came across. Do you remember... The second Wayne Phillips? No. I barely even remember the first Wayne Phillips. So there were two <laughs> Wayne Phillips. There was Wayne N. Phillips and Wayne B. Phillips. So Wayne M. Phillips played for Victoria and he played one test match. <laughs> he averaged 38 for Victoria and he had a really long career. And I watched most of his career because he was playing for Victoria and he was an opening batsman. He's one of those guys that kind of looked like he was born 35 years old, very James Treadwell-esque. <laughs> and he was a good player. And he played one game for Australia with 60 first-class games and no one ever thought he was a gun. And then you've got Jamie Siddons who dominated and mm-hmm. was incredible and was a brilliant athlete, played Aussie rules football as well, and professionally, I should say. Um you know, just incredible. And you start to realize how lucky different players in different eras can be. Like how much more talented is Tim Bresnan than Ian Harvey? Mm-hmm. Tiny little things like that. The whole West Indian wicketkeeper thing is quite interesting. I mean, wicketkeeping around the world can be really interesting. You know, Darren Berry was probably at one point in his life the best wicketkeeper on earth. He still is, according to Shane Warne. Yeah, and didn't wicketkeep ahead of Adam Gilchrist or Ian Healy, and probably mm-hmm. rightly. So you, you have little things like that that happen. And Darren Berry and Jamie Siddons, and then we had Brad Hodge. It was a period of cricket where Dean Jones had been taken out of the side, and you maybe, for me, I started to focus on those sorts of things a little bit more. Have you ever seen much of Martin Love Bat? Tiny little bit. When you watched him, he just looked like he knew cricket. Do you know what I mean? Yes. You watch someone like Ian Bell and you go, wow, how good is Ian Bell at a young age? But you also think he doesn't really know he's that good and he doesn't understand perhaps how to make runs at times. And then you watch Martin Love from a young age and you're just like, he gets it and he's always yeah. going to get it. And he did until a very late period in his career. 
And I suppose those sorts of guys, there's something very interesting with them that they're never going to have the breaks. I mean, look at Brad Hodge. Hodgie, he's actually an outside chance of listening to this, although he probably doesn't listen to podcasts, although someone will probably tell him I've slagged him off, but that's okay. He can send me a WhatsApp. Hodgie <laughs> had a big ego, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of bravado about him. You remember him at the crease? Like he was four foot eight and yet yeah. he had the barrel <laughs> chest and there's a strut about him at all times. And yet there was always this sort of feeling that his game wasn't quite 100% complete. Now, realistically, other than Steve Smith and, well, I suppose now Marnus, but he could basically pick wherever he wanted to bat in the middle order mm-hmm. for Australia now. And yet when he was there, you know, a few openers and top order guys came and went, but realistically that middle order was solid and you weren't getting into it. You then start to focus on those sorts of guys and perhaps it was just because Victoria had a bunch of them, but those sorts of cricketers have always been really, really interesting to me. I'll go to another one, Bryce McGain, mm. who is probably the first one of these guys that I wrote a lot about. So I chatted to Bryce McGain. I got to know him a little bit. And we had a couple of hours chat over lunch one day. You know, it was the first cricketer I ever met when he was a professional cricketer. And I was a journalist or writer. I spent a couple of hours talking to him. And one of the things he told me was that when he was playing second 11 cricket, so second 11 cricket in club cricket. <laughs> so he's not even in his first for his club's team, right? He's about 28, 29. And he's watching test matches at home on the TV with his mates. They're all getting drunk. And he's sitting there watching, looking for tips from Daniel Vittori, from Rangana Harath, from whichever spinners were bowling at the time. He's looking for things, how they change their hand position, where they go on the crease, the different speeds, why they bowl at different speeds, when they suddenly throw the wide one in, all those sorts of things. And you realize that for a lot of those sorts of guys, Pankaj Singh, Bryce McGain, Ryan Harris is probably another good one, even though he went on to have a really good career. You realize that, the stuff that we don't see, they are working so very hard. That's not to say that Pat Cummins doesn't work on his game, but Pat Cummins mm-hmm. and Ishant Sharma were always going to have opportunities and you're always going to have an opportunity to write about them because they're never going away. You have a fleeting moment to write about Bryce McGain and Pankaj mm-hmm. Singh and those sorts of guys. And, you know, I was on a cricket writer back in the day, but Brad Hodge is a perfect example. Like Brad Hodge made a double century against South Africa mm-hmm. on the Wacker and yet, a couple of test matches later, he was gone. Mark Rampakash is another one. Like, I missed him as a professional, but do you remember the 2009 Ashes? There was this call for him to come back. Yes, I do remember that, actually. I can't remember if I wrote it on Cricket with Balls, or I know it ended up in my book. This whole thing of imagine being that guy and suddenly being told, now that you've worked out how to be the best version of Mark Rampakash, you have a chance of coming back and then you don't get picked. <laughs> Like now, you know, I've worked with Ramps. Apparently, I only work with guys like Ramps and Hodge who have been completely done over. Who is a lovable loser now? Yeah. And the other one is uh, Roddy Eswick, who has a first class bowling average of 21. So I think there's a lot of those sorts of guys out there, and you sort of get drawn to them a little bit. And there's obviously something in my personality, but I find them just, you know, endlessly fascinating that the guys who keep fighting and fighting and fighting, because you, you see guys like Saf Ansari and Alex Loudon and trying to think of some non-English versions, but there's certainly a lot of non-English versions who are between the age of 27 and 32 are just like, yeah. And then you see these other guys who are just like, nope, I have to keep going. This is what I do and I'm going to keep doing it. And you understand that. There were a couple of spinners in uh, India in the 70s. They couldn't get into the national team for obvious reasons because they were established, you know, they were courted, but only three of them played together and that's Mm. all you needed anyway. It's like the uh, pace quartet of West Indies. Exactly. They barely played together, but, you know, that's the legend of it. Rajinder Goel and Padmakar Shivalkar, right? So they were two great spinners, phenomenal first-class records, never played tests. And so 
sometimes I wonder if you're such a legend in first class cricket and the queue is so packed ahead of you, is it better to have not played test at all? Because the legend only grows now. Like, ah, oh, if only he yeah. had had the opportunity at the peak of his first class career that psh, baby, who? You know, someone like Badrina, you know, scored tons of runs. Mazumdar, on the other hand, you know, didn't get to play for India. Tons of runs, you know. So his legend is perfect. Mm. You know, whereas Badrinath, you know, played against South Africa, made some runs, but didn't really cut it in international. Same thing. For, uh, so I wonder, like, would Pankaj Singh or Brad Hodge's legend or whatever, if these guys that have been playing first class cricket for so long because they want that national honor, they want that test cap, because that's what they got into playing cricket for. And that's what they've devoted their entire life for that. So they're not going to go quietly like, no, nope, I need that cap. I need the number. Doesn't matter. I've played cricket for Australia or England or India, whatever, and nobody can take that away from me ever. Even though Stats Guru says, you know, two test matches, one for 130 or whatever in 65 overs. It's really interesting. So a friend of mine was trying to talk to a young player, player about maybe 28, 29 ish. And this guy was clearly becoming a good T20 player and could go around the world and, and make good money. But he was still spending 70% of his time working on his first class game. And this guy's just like, look, you might play a test. You might even, if you're lucky, play five or seven. That's all you're going to get. You're that kind of player. You're going to be on the periphery. They're going to decide that they want you for a small period of time, but you're never going to be an automatic selection. And if you're not an automatic selection, you're at the whim of a couple of bad innings. Many things, yeah. Those sorts of things. And this guy was like, yeah, I've kind of worked that out. And he said, but it's worth it for me to play one. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think in those sorts of things, if you told Pankaj that you'd be thought of slightly higher if you never played a test match, I don't think that he would feel any better about Mm -hmm. that. For Bryce McGain, it was to get there once was the thing that he did everything to do. Also, there are a lot of players who play between five and 20 test matches who leave no impact on the game. And you meet them years later, and uh, I can't remember, there was a guy I was writing about recently, he was involved in the Basil Dolivera story, played for Lancashire, God, I can't remember his name, had a big fast bowler's ass, ended up with a test bowling average of 21. Mm. And he's a guy who played, I don't know, 12, 13 test matches, average 21, and just doesn't exist in conversation anymore. In some ways, these other more flawed players, like Ram Prakash is always going to be someone we talk about because mm-hmm. it was such a bizarre situation. Brad Hodge, again, with the double century. Pankaj, Bryce McGain, Sohail Khan is another one that came to mind. Even True. if you go down the level, like, there's some great stories in first-class cricket, like uh, Seymour Clark, the yeah. Somerset wicketkeeper, who played five games and never made a run. Major Bennett, the guy who played for Surrey. So I always laugh every time I say, who was accidentally made captain of Surrey, and then they were so polite that they didn't rescind the captaincy, so he just batted at eight for a whole year and... Average 15. and <laughs> The Lee Jamon before Lee Jamon. I mean, he was like Lee Jamon. Pl- I mean, Lee Jamon must be like, come on, guys, if you heard of this Major Bennett, stop making fun of me. So, yeah, and Lee Jamon's another one. I mean, for a lot of us who grew up in that era, what an incredible sort of story that he was. And there's, um, I think his name is Bill Hines, this legendary American sports writer who basically for his whole career only ever wrote about losers as much as he could. And he's got a quote that says something along the lines of, you find the best stories in the loser's dressing room. Mm-hmm. If you talk to Bryce McGain, it is a fundamentally better story than Pat Cummins' story. Mm. 
doesn't mean that Pat Cummins' story isn't incredible. And Steve Smith, I mean, everything that Steve Smith has gone through, as brilliant as it is, doesn't compare to the weirdness of Seymour Clark. Yeah. The human interest story, because cricket and sport like baseball, they are built around failure. And these guys encapsulate that so much. Because for every person that succeeds, there has to be many that don't. Because life is full of rejections and Mm. refusals and failures generally. And sometimes you win if you're lucky and everything aligns up. So as human beings, we are attracted to that. We sympathize with that. You're like, oh yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah, so I I think you're right. And for major events, I usually, unless I've been following a team for a long time, I usually try and write on the team that is going to lose or is losing. Crick Info don't always allow that. And sometimes different things happen, but I would prefer to talk about the team that's losing. For one thing, you have a freedom with them that you don't get. The winning team, even if they've played poorly and won, you have to honour the fact they're the winning team. Yeah. You know how I feel about that sort of stuff. I don't mm-hmm. give a shit. I'd rather write about the losing team's moral victory or how this was the greatest innings this team had ever batted, even though they lost by 300 runs in this match eventually and, and those sorts of things. And I just think that there is something far more interesting. I remember uh, Zach Lowe talking about, he wrote about Bam Adebayo. I think he wrote about Bam Adebayo just before Bam Adebayo had a breakout season for the Miami Heat. And for those who don't know, he's an NBA player who has a brilliant backstory and a completely different kind of player than had sort of existed before him. And Zach Lowe was talking about the fact that everyone wants you to write about the top 15 to 20 players over and over again, right? That's essentially what you are supposed to do in that position. And you have to really be careful about handpicking the guys that are outside of that. And I think he's completely right that I'll occasionally be able to find a Colin Ingram story, right, or a Benny Howe story. But mostly you don't have the ability to find those kinds of stories. And you write a really good piece. I read a really good piece a couple of years ago on Ricky Clark. No one read it because at that stage, Ricky Clark just wasn't a thing. And it didn't matter that it was an interesting story about him as a cricketer and how all-rounders fit into T20. It was Ricky Clark and everyone just went, next So if you were going to write about those players that aren't in that top 20 sort of bracket, Mm -hmm. the story has to be killer. Mm -hmm. And I think with Pankaj, you had that, and you had that with someone like Ramprakash and Sohail Khan and Bryce McGain, and there would have been a great piece to write on Stuart Law back in the day and Brad Hodge and Jamie Siddons, all those sorts of people. I don't know if you noticed, but Bryden Coverdale does the One Test Wonders series for cricket i think i think it might have stopped now when you read some of those brian's a brilliant writer but you realize how many of those one test wonders didn't have great stories Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean like occasionally he would find one that was just you couldn't stop reading it and you wanted to book on this random person you'd never heard of before but you realize that sometimes they were just cricketers that didn't make it yeah and so i think a lot of it is when you see pankaj you realize that there's a universal story there yeah And that he's not just a cricketer who won't just make it. He's a cricketer that won't just make it that everyone's going to remember for random bizarre reasons. And I think in that situation, it is worth the time and the effort to do the proper piece on them. So, you know, now that we're bringing it back to Pankaj, let's wrap it up with Pankaj's nipples. He's got the fast bowler with the, he's got a wide body and the shirt is like a size too small. And probably it's English summer, which is basically like winter in India. Perhaps. So I'm bringing this around because of your obsession with Pankaj at that time anyway. There is a line in the piece. I highly recommend people to go read it. There's a line that you say that you knew he was born to be a bowler because of the way he approached the crease as a batsman. Right. So I thought that was clever because that puts the mental image of somebody that is 
clumsy. That's not really coordinated. It's like a, it's a, but it's a bull. So any lasting memories like the nipple story or whatever, any lasting memories of punkage from those two test matches as we wrap this up? Well, now that you've mentioned his nipples, I won't go there. Now, what I remember the most, although I have been a punkage's nipples before, but what I remember the most is I'm being very reductive here, but there's almost two different kinds of bowlers. There's the kind of bowler who doesn't want to get to the end of his mark. Even if he's just bowled a great ball, he doesn't want to get to the end of his mark. And if he's bowled a terrible ball, it's a real pain for him to get back and bowl the next ball. And then there's the sort of pancage bowlers who everything is about that next ball. I don't think a lot of other people maybe were able to articulate that. Mm -hmm. But I think we all felt that. We all felt that he was one of those guys that it's just like, to use one of my old Andre Nell lines, if you put him up a hill into the wind with a piano on his back, he would still keep bowling. Mm-hmm. Anrik Norkia is a perfect example of that now. You know, Peter Siddle was another one, and uh, Sohail Khan was another one. My favorite. <laughs> you know, and you just see them, and you're just like, they're going to bowl. Ben Hilfenhaus. What would have had to have happened for Ben Hilfenhaus not to want to get to the end of his mark? He was just like, literally, he just wanted to get to the end of the mark every ball. And you see those sorts of guys come through. And Pankaj was a perfect example of that, of just wanting to get through, wanting to bowl the next ball. And there is, even if you don't work it out intellectually, emotionally, you sort of understand, you see this guy who's just going to keep trying and he's going to keep trying and he's going to keep trying. And that's what I think we saw with Pankaj. And the fact that the most annoyed we kind of saw him was when he was off the field, when he was hiding, also says something about him as a person. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) When he thought no one in the world was watching anymore, that's when he showed his frustration. Yet for a day and a half when he was getting smashed everywhere, I don't know, all that sort of stuff happened. And then there was that little thing of how excited the Indian team were when he took that wicket. And he couldn't Mm. be excited because there was that embarrassment for him of, that's not a good wicket. I know what a good wicket is. I'm a professional bowler. And I think by that point in the series, Rohit Sharma had a wicket. Jadeja had a shit wicket too. Jadeja Uh, bowled a half-tracker wicket. There were some shocking people getting wickets. And they came in and cheered him. But it wasn't so much that they cheered him. It was afterwards. And I don't know if this is because my piece had been passed on or whether they had just understood the emotional point. But I made a big point of the fact that when he left the field for that first innings, and we never thought he'd bowl again in a test match. And at that stage, weirdly, mm-hmm. I've written big pieces about Sohail Khan and, and Bryce McGain. I think they had the worst test figures ever. And Pankaj might have gone beyond them or joined them anyway. Yes. And so... He left the field that first time on his own. That second time, and it's not like he bowled brilliantly. He bowled better in the first test when he got no wickets. That second time, watching his teammates wait for him, you were just like, everyone has worked out emotionally that this is their guy. And I think it comes down from that thing of he was just going to front up and front up and front up. And in a way, we have seen bowlers not do that before. And we have seen bowlers who, even when the captain asks them the ball, they'll keep bowling, but you can see they're just not in it. Pankaj was in it the whole time. Even if he couldn't do it, he was in it. And I don't know, there's a beauty in that. And I think that's why people like Pankaj saying, stick with this. If you saw him playing those two test matches, you're going to be in a bar one day or in an airport one day talking about cricket and you're going to mention it. And if the other guy knows who it is, you're going to have like that five minute conversation where you're really excited. Soulmates. <laughs> yeah. Pankaj soulmates. That's why you wanted to talk about this piece as well. Do you yes. know what I mean? Because for that same reason. And that's why Bill Hines, or hopefully I've got his name right, but that's why guys like Bill Hines write, like writing about the lovable losers because Pankaj can teach us more in his bowling than someone else can teach us in a 40-match career. And that's just, it's a wonderful thing. And I haven't followed Pankaj 
that much since that. Yeah. But I just hope he has a wonderful life and that th- yeah. good things happen to him. All right. On that note, once again, thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me on, on the Red Inker, where you come for Pankaj and stay for Wayne Phillips. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on, King. Soon to be Emperor. Cheers, man. <laughs> Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guest in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. If you're liking this podcast, then perhaps you'll like our other show, Double Century. It's my podcast on the history of cricket, where I take you through the stories that made our game. Season 1 included 11 topics, like the evolution of batting, reverse swing, and that first crazy test. But Season 2 is dedicated to one topic, race in cricket. For that, we look at the incredible story of Basil D'Oliveira, but also cricket's historically strange relationship with race. We look at what happened to Basil D'Oliveira and also delve into Cricket's historically strange relationship with race. You can find Double Century in all your podcasty streams.